This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to Around the Dial, your one-stop shop for sports talk's best moments every day. Here's your host, CBS Sports Radio's Damon Amendolara. This is Around the Dial, your home for your best sports talk right here on Wednesday, April 24th. Thanks, as always, for hanging out with us. I'm Andrew Bogish. DA remains on vacation. Find him on Instagram if you want to see him in some traditional Peruvian attire. I kid you not. So now we're one day away from the NFL draft. Seems like a good time to rank the league's GMs. Greg Rosenthal made that list for NFL.com. Then discussed it with Bull and Fox on 92.3 The Fan in Cleveland. You have John Dorsey. You had him 17th last year to number four this year, only behind Bill Belichick, multiple Super Bowl champion, Howie Roseman, Super Bowl champion, and Kevin Colbert, Super Bowl champion. And if uh, the Steelers don't have a good year, I have a feeling, and the Browns do, John Dorsey could pass him this year based on your write-up on this. So all the way up to number four, Greg, uh, the talent infusion on paper's been great. Not proven yet. Tell us why you got him at four. Well, I counted the, the body of work. So that's why Kevin Colbert's up there, John Schneider for the Seahawks. Uh, you have to go back years and years and see the work that they've done. With sure. Dorsey, it's looking at what he did now in Kansas City and Cleveland. So sure. Two places that he quickly, not only uh, did he make you know the Browns talented and relevant, and I love the, the value and the moves that he's done for them, uh, he made the, the Chiefs one of the most talented teams in the league, along with Andy Reid. I wasn't sure to where to divvy up the credit, but I think the reality is he's ended up with Patrick Mahomes and Baker Mayfield and has added a lot of talent to both rosters. So right now he's, he's, like, a, he's like a baseball hitter who's hitting 600 in the, his first week of the season. Right now, you have Dave Gettleman at 19, down six spots, and everyone's hating on him. The, the, the Odell trade, they lost that trade, blah, 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 blah. He likes Manning. He doesn't know what he wants in quarterbacks. If he <laughs> somehow turns this Beckham trade into a franchise quarterback and turns the Giants around, then he's he's a top-five GM on your list. <laughs> that would be, yeah. I mean, I don't know about a top-five Oh, top-10? I mean, he significantly jumps. It would make a huge difference, and that, and that's what he's talking about uh, this this off season. And you you hear a lot that they they like Daniel Jones out of Duke, and we'll see if he's if he's that type of quarterback. Uh, but Gettleman also has done a straight, you know, like the Olivier Vernon trade, for instance, uh, to the Browns is typical of the uh, the curious moves I've seen the Giants made and, and the great moves that the Browns are making because the Giants got rid of their best young defensive players. I mean, they they did it because they didn't fit their coaches. And that's, to me, how you lose. I mean, Olivier Vernon uh, and Landon Collins were probably the two best players on a pretty lousy defense, and then you, you get rid of them and you don't get a lot in return. 
We're talking with Greg Rosenthal on NFL.com, no doubt. I love the list. I think it's great. There was only one guy, in my opinion, there was only one guy I saw on your list, and I said, I thought he, I th- in my opinion, I thought you were way off. There was only one guy. And that okay. that was Steve Kime. I would have had him like by the bottom. Not that he's that far from the bottom, but I would have had him probably, you know, in those bottom two or three. That was the only guy I for whatever it's worth, I don't know, you don't care what I think, but that was the only guy. Every every other guy I was like, Yeah, I'd have him around here, Remember? That was the only guy. Why I mean I know he's not he's still pretty low, but why not even further towards the bottom on Kime? Hey, you know, I care what you think. It wouldn't yeah. be on the show if I didn't. No, care. Fair enough. Good. Uh, <laughs> I, I was giving him some credit for his – basically, if you look at the guys that are below him, uh, David Caldwell and Bruce Allen yeah. and Mike McCagney, none of those guys have had any sustained success. And what Kime did, along with Bruce Arians, when he arrived there uh, to make the Arizona Cardinals in, into a consistent winner for about three years, and, and I had – it really was one big-time draft class, but made some good moves in terms of veterans, too. At least he had some positives on, his, fair. on his resume, whereas the other guys did not. I think, I'll think i be honest. I think when I first looked at it, I probably, I probably wasn't even thinking that he'd been there that long in my mind, but you're right. Yep. It's a good point. Uh, Greg, great stuff, man. I like, I love this list. I think I, I, I it's great. I, it's really interesting. And I agree with the big drop from Elway. I think he's overrated. And I, and I like even that you say you gave him too much credit for when they won. Because I feel like we all gave him too much credit when they won, and now he's done lousy lately. Yeah, he's a, he was a great story. Everyone loves John Elway. Yeah. And he kind of walks into the room, and he, he's a, like a modern-day cowboy or anything. But overall, like a lot of those players were in place. Peyton Manning, you know, he did a good job closing that deal. But the drafts have been terrible. And the GMs that always have the same problems on their roster, and their problems have been offensive line, and now lately it's been quarterbacks. Yeah. Uh, he's had the same problems for seven years. Those are the guys that, that didn't do well in this exercise. NFL.com's Greg Rosenthal with Bull and Fox on 92.3 The Fan in Cleveland. The draft is the time for GMs to make their doubters, like we all are, shut up. Maybe you didn't like their free agency or a trade they made or didn't make. Now's the time those GMs can add talent that'll pay dividends for years to come because there's no escaping this truth in the NFL. You have to draft well. No matter who you are, no matter who your coach is, your QB, your owner, division, whatever it may be, whatever your situation, you have to draft well. Whether you're starting from scratch, adding talent to nothing, or you're supplanting veteran leadership and veteran talent with young, cheap talent, you have to do your job in the draft as a GM, scouting director, scouts. No team can survive, especially over multiple years, if they do not draft well. Let's tie up all the loose ends now as we head towards round one. Jamie and Stoney on 97.1, the ticket in Detroit, checked in with insider Jason Lockhanfora. Kyler Murray, number one, is that a done deal in your mind, or is there still at least a 3% chance that they do something different? It's a done deal in my mind. Uh, My mind can be warped at times, but uh, (laughs) I have... You never say you know, a thousand percent right. this time of year. But I, this is one of those where I'm just going to go back to everything I've heard in all my reporting for, you know, a span of months. And I know at the last minute things have a way of changing or narratives change or, you know, different sort of theories come out of the woodwork and teams certainly go to, in some instances, great lengths to try to obscure reality. But I believe that the selection of Cliff Kingsbury as their head coach was very much a precursor 
to a, a, a major offensive overhaul that will include Tyler Murray running their offense. That said, uh, where's the landing spot for Josh Rosen, and will that happen uh, tonight? Um, it doesn't have to happen tonight because I don't think they're getting a first-round pick for him. Um, you know, I, I think they're, they're trying to create a market where that's somewhat feasible or viable. I personally, um, I just don't buy it. I, I just don't see it. Um, now, Friday, you know, Friday morning, Friday afternoon, Friday during the draft, um, sure. But if, if there were teams clamoring for Josh Rosen and they were getting close to what they think is value, then this would have been resolved a long time ago. Um, I keep coming back to the Chargers and the Bengals. You know, a lot of teams, I mean, at least three quarterbacks are going to go in the first round, maybe four. And then I think when we're sitting there Friday and teams start looking at their board and they either have um, you know, a pressing need still right now or they're just not sure that the guy they have will be the guy long-term because of the case of the Bengals. He's Andy Dalton, and they're just renting him, and they've got a new head coach. Or the Chargers, you know, look, they, were, they, they liked Mason Rudolph last year. There's been, there's been a kid every year who they've kind of come away with saying, hey, that could be the heir apparent if things go right on day two. It hasn't fallen that way. Um, but Rosen played right under their noses there in Southern California. He's so cheap. Um, I think him spending time around a veteran like Philip Rivers would, would only, you know, hasten his development. And he wouldn't have to do, you know, he wouldn't have to answer a whole bunch of questions or, or, or you know, say boo, probably, you know, at least the first year he's there. So I think there's a chance that somebody trades their second-round pick for him because he's so cheap now with, the, with this upfront money already paid, especially the case of Mike Brown, who, let's, let's face it, at times, you know, they've been, Penny-wise and pound-foolish. I would say that's more in the past than the last, you know, six, seven years. But still, if he's sitting there saying, well, wait a minute, I might be able to find my next quarterback and do it for, you know, a million, for less than I'd have to pay this second-round pick when I factor in his signing bonus and everything else, you know, why, why don't we just, you know, why, and he's older than these other quarterbacks and a little more advanced than a lot of them who are coming in the league this year. Why wouldn't, you know, why wouldn't we throw an arrow in that direction? I've heard a lot of people, I mean, obviously part of your job, Jason, is to decipher between legitimate mm-hmm. talk and some of the BS that's out there. And I know there's people you trust and people maybe you don't trust as much. The Dwayne Haskins thing, is it your feeling that he will end up on a team like the Giants or the Redskins? Or is some of the negative talk about Dwayne Haskins legit and he might actually drop? I don't think there's a circumstance that he drops past Washington at 15. You know, I, I just don't. Um would that is that considered a slide? Is that lower than he should go? I mean, if you just keep going back to the film, and you look at the rest of this draft class, there are certainly people who would say, "Yeah, he should go higher than that." Um, will Washington move up to get him? I think is the question. Mm-hmm. And I think the Giants are perfectly happy to take Daniel Jones at seventeen, and you know try to get a blue chip player at, for their defense at six. And then I think the Oakland Raiders really like Haskins. But, boy, John Gruden really likes a lot of quarterbacks, right? I mean, he he has a way of falling in love with quarterbacks. That's JLC with Jamie and Stoney in Detroit. The intrigue continues around this draft, starting with the Cardinals and Kyler Murray as the guys laid out. I still think that the Cardinals are taking Kyler Murray. And then we have a very interesting conversation about what they do with Josh Rosen. Obviously, they need to deal him once they take Kyler Murray 
But what can they get for Josh Rosen obviously is the biggest question. They're not going to make up exactly what they made and what they paid for him a year ago. I still think a pick early in round two is the best they're going to get. And right now, they really have no leverage. If anybody, if they call any team right now and go, hey, you want Josh Rosen, that GM's going to know what's going on and not going to want to make a deal. But when we get through round one Thursday and head towards Friday, and a team that wanted a quarterback and for some reason didn't get one in round one and doesn't like what's left in round two, to me, that's the team that makes this move, and that's the situation that gives the Cardinals back the leverage and possibly a little mini bidding war that really is not possible right now. So there's the draft and these incoming rookies, and then there's veterans who still have some business needs that NFL teams need to address. Kicker Robbie Gold is unhappy right now with the franchise tag in San Francisco. He's apparently unwilling to negotiate any more with the Niners and wants to be traded. The Bears need a kicker. Gold used to be the Bears kicker. So Mully and Hoff floated the idea of a reunion on the score in Chicago. So let's look at what we know because, I, look, you know where I stand on the Robbie Gold idea and, and the idea that where the Bears are a kicker away from being oh, a Super Bowl I'm team. All for everybody, Robbie everybody Gold. understands everybody that. Yeah. Everybody knows that the Cody Parkey misc prevented what it prevented and, and all these things. But let's look at what we know. We know that Robbie Gold's heart definitely is not in San Francisco. We know <laughs> that his he wants to be a Bear. And we also know that, as you point out, Molly, if you're paying attention to this, as we are, there's been really very little buzz about Robbie Gold's return to Hallis Hall at Hallis Hall. Inside Hallis Hall, I can tell you that there is not a consensus, as there is among Bears fans, that Robbie Gold coming back to the Bears is a great idea for whatever reason. For whatever reason there the, those, those those feelings exist, they do exist. And that's not manufactured. That's real. So there's got to be two to tango. And I think when you look at what is ahead of you know, in this story, there, there's a lot in the way. Now, if I'm Ryan Pace, if I'm the football people at Hallis Hall, I get everybody in a room and I do try to have this conversation. What are we missing? What, do, what don't we have to become a Super Bowl contender? If you're convinced that it's a kicker, you get past whatever it is that are the non-football reasons that might be preventing this, this from happening or from you pursuing him. But I do wonder how motivated Ryan Pace will be to bring in a guy that's a reminder of one of his biggest miscalculations since he became general manager. So you've got to consider all of these things before you get to the point where if you're John Lynch, as you point out, why in the world would you succumb to a kicker who's trying to hold your franchise hostage? You wouldn't. You don't need him in camp. You don't need him, you don't need him until week one. Let him hold out. You have the leverage. Exercise it. That Cody Parkey missed last season is going to live in infamy in Chicago. Gold has the ability to avoid a repeat this winter. And I'm always going to defend the value of a kicker. Not running a blank check, not using a first-round pick on one of these guys, but maybe a second. That's how important to me this position is. And I know a lot of you like to mock it. I know the league is doing more and more to make that job more difficult and take some of the aspects of it away. But when push comes to shove... That's a significant part of your team. I mean, just think about all of the hardest losses you've dealt with with your football team. I would guess that a good chunk of them tend to include a kicker missing a big kick. And just to kind of further my point, when you really should be paying legitimate value for a kicker, a guy that you know can get the job done when he has to, absolutely has to, in the time between me writing this and listening to that interview this morning 
And actually standing here talking to you right now, the Baltimore Ravens made Justin Tucker the highest paid kicker in NFL history, and he absolutely deserves it. From football to basketball now, the NBA world is still buzzing about Damian Lillard's 37-foot buzzer-beating series-ending three against the Thunder last night. Jeff Calkins and Dan Devine broke it down on 92.9 Memphis. Says a lot about the arc of the NBA, uh, the way things have bent over the last, you know, half dozen years, that taking a contested 37-foot sidestep three-pointer with, you know, no time remaining on the shot clock is a good shot for somebody, but... Uh, Damian Lillard shot around like I mean, factoring in this postseason where I think he went five for five from beyond thirty feet in the series against Oklahoma City, he shot somewhere around thirty-eight or thirty-nine percent from beyond thirty feet this season. And if you can make him from out there, it's hard to defend him from out there. And they caught there there an extra point. So I mean, uh, the the idea that he would with you know whatever it was ten seconds left and the tie, and the ball in his hands in a tie game just instantly look at it and. Say, say, well, this is, this is the shot. This is the shot I'm going to make. And, uh, you know, I'm going to take it and I'm going to make it. And then actually do it is perplexing and mind-blowing. But um, it was also a heck of a lot of fun to watch. And it's got the uh, Portland on to round two and an awful lot of questions for Oklahoma City. Well, okay, so it was an iconic, fantastic, incredible shot. And it was ballsy and it was everything you could possibly say and everything you did say in your column um, and for lots of players, and it wasn't an awful shot for Dame Lillard because, as you say, five of five on 30-footers. I don't know that he was five on five on 37-footers 30, contested by Paul George. <laughs> like, I, I still think that in the end, like, it was a magnificent shot, no question. In the end, isn't the, isn't the judgment of whether a shot is a bad shot or a good shot, if you miss it, would you say, oh, well, they got the look they wanted? I think for it to be a good shot, you have to say, well, you got the look they wanted. And I don't think if he missed it, we would have said, it. well, they got the look they wanted. I, can, I think that's a, that's a fair point. It's the only counter that I would have to it is that on a night like last night with right. Lillard doing what he was doing. I can see that, yep. The shot you want is Damian Lillard <laughs> pulled up from wherever the hell he wants. <laughs> I mean, yes, that's the thing, right. you know, it's a, it's, and so, you know, to, to reach that point, like there, there isn't another player in a Blazers uniform I would have felt more comfortable having the ball in his hands. There's not another person I would have, uh, you know, rather made that decision. And, you know, there's not another person I would trust, uh, uh, not another, another person in that game that I would trust to make a shot from anywhere on the court more than I trusted Lillard last night. So um, I think, you know, you're right. It, it, there, there's that question of process over results, make or miss league, all those sorts of things. But um, sometimes the stupid is the point, and I think the stupid was kind of the point for Dame Lillard last night. That was, uh, it was, it was unforgettable. And, uh, you know, we, we can quibble about, uh, you know, about expected shot quality, but, uh, the, you know, the, the, I think the, 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 the Blazers will be doing that in the second round and the Thunder won't. It's also true that, that, I mean, it's sort of the counter to he made the smart basketball play. Um, like when, when someone gives up a, the, the, a, a winning shot in the final moments to a lesser player, you're exactly right. The bright basketball play was whatever the hell Dame Lillard wanted it to be, and that's the right basketball play. Sometimes those things converge, and we take that out of the equation when we talk about, I mean, it comes up most famously with LeBron not taking shots, right, fair or unfair, in his past, um, because he makes the quote-unquote right basketball play. But yes, is the right basketball play the best basketball player 
um, taking the shot. It was a it was a r- remarkable moment. Okay, the flip side of that, and then he had the presence to say wave goodbye, which was just absolutely magnificent as well. Though I still can't believe this shot. I cannot believe that thirty seven feet is being within range for Lillard, but it is. And at first, I actually a little agreed with Paul George, who was defending Lillard, and then said that was a bad shot because it was from so far away. Because it was so from so far away. I, I, when you first see it, you go, how is that shot with no attempt going towards the rim, sidestepping, contested three from 30-plus feet, how is that a good shot? But it is a good shot. And Lillard's reasoning for staying away from traffic, staying away from a referee's whistle not coming and him being fouled on this play and not getting the call. And then you mix in the fact that he takes shots from that distance often and knocks them down often. It was a good shot, and he made it. And yet, the shot wasn't necessarily the best part of the whole thing. After the shot, Lillard gives a dismissive wave to the Thunder bench, and then as a camera gets hung over the Blazers' pile, he gives this stone-cold stare to the TV audience. He is an assassin, and he was special last night to get the Blazers into round two. LSU has a new athletic director with Scott Woodward leaving Texas A&M to replace Joe Oliva. Woodward is from Baton Rouge, graduated from LSU, and worked there for a few years. He was a guest on WWL in New Orleans. All right, Scott, so uh, I would imagine as a local guy, this is um, a dream come true for you to return to LSU now as the athletic director. Yeah, I'm really lucky and blessed and and honored to to really – uh, come back home, and I'm really excited about it and, and really looking forward to the challenges uh, going forward. Scott, when you uh, look at this the success of this, uh, that university athletically and in the SEC, how do you size up maybe the big three in terms of uh, baseball, football, and basketball, the success that they're, they're having and, and, are, and headed in the right direction? You know, I really, I really, you know, I always admired what, what LSU's done and, uh, that's a compliment to both uh, Skip, uh, who I worked with, and Joe Oliva, who I had a lot of respect for, working together on the uh, SEC ADs committee. And, um, you know, LSU, there's a lot uh, that's going very well here, and uh, there's not much broken, frankly. And so it, it's, it's, uh, it's something I'm really going to have to drill down and just see where we as an administration can help our coaches, Coach O and uh, – Coach Wade and, and Coach Maneri in, in the big three sports, as you said, but all in our sports, you know, and just see how we can help them uh, uh, to, to do greater and better things, and that's what we're here to do is support them. How would you or who would you describe as some of your mentors growing up? You know, I have, there's so many. If I started, with the, I would leave someone out. But, you know, you first start with your family. You know, my mom and dad were, were high, high, uh, high impact and influence on me, and, you know, just – Numerous people along the road. Uh, it's 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 kind of a uh, you know uh, dozens and dozens of wonderful people that have had a great effect upon me. Scott, if you were to um, kind of describe yourself, maybe your leadership style, maybe in one or two words, how would you describe yourself? Yeah, you know, I'm very transparent, and I'm a very uh, I, I very much uh, let my folks uh, do their work, and I kind of use the metaphor of a, I'm like an executive producer of a film instead of a real autocratic leader. And I like to, I like to let the folks do their job and do it well and do what they do. And, uh, you know, I have, uh, high, high, uh, expectations for accountability 
in the job that they do, but uh, I want them to do it well, and uh, I stay on it pretty hard, and that's how I manage for the most part. Scott, obviously, uh, LSU basketball coach Will Wade went through a suspension, reinstated. Um, I, I know that you not, might not necessarily know all the details yet, but um, he has your full support right now? Sure, Christian, and, and it's uh, it's uh, one of these things I probably know less than you do. and uh, You know, I have to be briefed and learned about it, but he does. Uh, and uh, he has my 100% support, and he's uh, he's our coach. And um and that's the way I approach these things. And uh, when something changes, and uh, you'll probably know before me as well. But uh, that's that's how I uh, coach. Uh, coaches are our coaches, and we support them 100%. Did you kind of view this or eye this job from afar, going back to Texas A&M and Washington, saying, hey, if the opportunity ever presented myself, that would be the, the, the dream job the, 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 to land at LSU? Well, you know, it just works out that way. I'm, I'm not one to set – crazy or, or, or really stringent goals. I always look at uh, opportunities very organically. And, you know, I've just been blessed and lucky to have uh, things work out from a timing standpoint and from an opportunity standpoint. And, uh, you know, like I said, I consider myself lucky. Scott, what would you say is the biggest challenge facing college athletics in general right now? What's the biggest thing that, that that's at the forefront that you guys might have to get creative, not just at LSU, but also um, – college sports in general might have to get creative in solving. Yeah, there's not any one thing. I mean, that's the, the, the thing that is is the dialogue. And I view it more as there's so much going on that's right about it uh, that that's, that we, we are happy with. That, that the, the challenges that we have are, are, are solvable, and they're, you know, you can enumerate them and name them, but they're, they're solvable and we can handle them. But Right now, I'm more positive in thinking that, hey, we're doing great things and uh, interesting things for, for our student-athletes, and I'm really happy with where we're going, and I think the future's bright. That's new LSU AD Scott Woodward on WWL in New Orleans. That Will Wade decision obviously is a huge one for Woodward. I doubt he knows less than us about it, as he said. That being said, Wade seems to be in a real tough spot right now, and Woodward right alongside of him. Wade's caught on tape, seemingly discussing payment for a recruit. That's going to be hard to get around, and the school played hard with him at first, suspending him for the rest of the regular season and then the SEC and the NCAA tournament. But when they finally spoke and he denied everything, they said, oh, that sounds great. Come on back. And now he's got his job again just in time for a recruiting period this month. So, uh, it still remains to be seen how seriously LSU is going to take this. My guess is they're going to sit on this as long as they possibly can and not have to acknowledge any wrongdoing until there's no other choice. And maybe, I'm sure they're hoping, they never actually get to that situation. So now last but not least, two Game 7s on playoff ice on Tuesday night. We'll start with the more routine one, the Bruins and the Leafs in Boston. Here's Mutt and Callahan on WEEI on the B's whim. Toronto was the better team. I'm not even sure. I agree. That, I'm not even sure it was that close. They had more well, for the first shots. Minutes, they had more definitely. hits. They had more energy. They were faster. They were better. They're more skilled. But the goalies are kind of important. The and, Bruins, and their last pairing of D terrible in the first period last night. Dermot and Gardner. That giveaway uh, by Gardner. That's that, their that Achilles Gardner, heel. That Gardner choke that when he 
uh, which goal was that? The, the second, the, one. Cycle the second to, goal. Cycle to nowhere. I think they called him the NBC broadcast. Yeah, and, and and he's had these. He's the only one who's played in all three Game Seven gag jobs uh, in the last uh, six years. He's the only Maple Leaf who's been in all three, and there's a reason for that. Is because he is one of the gaggers. That was clear. The the Milbury and, and what's his name? Brian Boucher. Yeah. Right between yeah. the glass. Yeah. Him. He's on the glass? Yes, he's down. He's, he's a goalie? He was a former goaltender. He now hangs out in the I ice. Knew, I knew he wasn't does. still a goalie. I could tell by the suit and tie. He might could still sleep. Yeah. He's a little uh, deck hockey. Right. He'll get out there on the weekends. <laughs> See, I, 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 it was a soft goal, but you guys are nuts. It wasn't Anderson, a soft goal. Anderson it was, was the was awesome goal. For, but, he, but for the next That's four, not how it works, Okay, yeah, This is exactly how it works. They did no. not lose because of that goal. They lost, they yes, they lost did, because yes, they did. Tuka Rask Listen to the host saved of their ass. Well, I, we I, know that. I can disagree the, with his, the host I just of explained game. to you the, the whole Maple Leafs story. Bounced, but they bounced back after that. They did not go Doesn't to the Doesn't matter. Shell. It was too they late. They outplayed the Bruins for the next uh, the four, 35 minutes or whatever it was, or 32 minutes. They didn't play a good third period. Right. And if but their by goalie then, was good, it would have been 1-1. It'd still be an overtime right now. The reason they lost is because uh, Anderson gave up a very soft goal and then a kind of soft goal, and Rast did not. The kind of soft goal was not until third period where the right. Leafs, the Leafs did not play right. a great third one. period. They, it was two they to exa- one. They emptied their uh, their passion bucket, whatever it's called, a beat level ten in that second period. They played awesome. They only got their that one goal, bucket? and their frustration uh, uh, rolled over. Is that to the another third period. Jack Edwardsism? It I've is. Never he heard said it last that. night. Yes. <laughs> what, Ken? Don't you going to argue with me on this? You're, yes, you guys you're are wrong. wrong. You're wrong. Toronto they, came out and played great for the first 12 minutes. They owned that first period. That is so deflating. Give up a goal like yes. that. Okay, and so how do they outplay? So it was so but deflating. If he didn't give it up, what they happens? outplayed the Bruins until the end of the second period. Correct. That's and, how and, deflating and, it was? And, and, yes. Yeah, you're playing catch up. What would the chasing. score be? What would the score be then if he didn't give up the softest goal in NHL history? Uh, probably scoreless. One I think the second, to one. The second goal one to might one. have been tied into the one first goal. One to one. But how, what would the score have been? A whole different what game. What would the score have been if Tuka Rask wasn't uh, stoning Mitch Marner uh, on a breakaway, stopping Austin Matthews point uh, uh, blank? I mean, exactly. He the saves he made one. in that spot when, as you said, Toronto was playing better? Toronto that was played it. better all night. I mean, obviously the Bruins poured it on at the end, but, you know, in in... in Total, the the Maple Loaves were better, right? Yes, I agree yes. with you. Yes. So why didn't they win? Because Tuka Rask was better. Okay, we, but it wasn't right. that goal that you. Okay, see, why not? I, I'm trying because if, if they had, if it had become two nothing, three nothing, four nothing, and the team looked deflated after that, Jerry, I'm with you. You'd point to that goal and you would say. Anderson was uh, soft as hell. That goal changed uh, that the team's goal attitude. Made all the difference. They responded and after and the Corrali goal too. I believe. The Bruins beat the Leafs in Game 7 for the second straight year and the third time total. So Toronto's first season with John Tavares ends in Round 1. But that was the lesser of the Game 7s on Tuesday. The Sharks and Golden Knights played an all-timer in San Jose. Vegas led 3-0 deep into the third period. Then the you-know-what hit the fan. A controversial penalty gave San Jose a five-minute never-ending power play. The Sharks scored four times in four minutes and one second to take the lead. Then they gave up the equalizer in the final minute of regulation, so they won in overtime 5-4 to get to round two. The NHL, if it was the NFL, would have a major refereeing issue this morning, but since it's just hockey, most people will ignore this call in the third period that gave the Sharks this huge power play that led to the four goals. If you didn't see it, Vegas forward Cody Eakin cross-checks Sharks captain Joe Pavelski off a face-off. Pavelski loses his balance, hits another Vegas player, 
goes down hard on the ice, hits his head on the ice with the helmet on, of course, but he's knocked unconscious in that scary kind of frozen pose, and then blood starts dripping out of the side of his helmet. They get him off the ice. Luckily, he seems to be okay. But the officials only make the call after seeing the aftermath. They give Cody Eakin a five-minute major, and they kick him out of the game, and then all those Sharks goals happen. Vegas is right to be mad about the call. It should not have been a major. The hit started the sequence, the cross-check, that is, but it didn't leave Pavelski injured like that. Bad luck did, and I don't think that should be held against Cody Eakin, but it was. The bottom line, however, is the bad call, the questionable call, did not mean that the Knights had to give up four power play goals in four minutes. They also had a chance on William Carlson's stick, shorthand in that situation, to score, end that rally, and end the game. They didn't do that either. They did not win in overtime, and they do not move on. And yes, the call sucked, but they had played a lot into it as well, and they've got to be better and more accountable for what they didn't do to lose that game after the call. So with that, we can say goodbye for today. Our thanks, as always, to Andrew Kaplan and to you for listening to Around the Dial, your home for your best sports talk. Once again, in for DA, I'm Andrew Bogish. We'll see you again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Around the Dial. Subscribe now for the best daily recap in sports talk on Radio.com or the Radio.com app. Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. 